0: The Film Comment podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Grace Jones, Bloodlight and Bammy. This new documentary is a portrait as stylish and unconventional as its larger than life subject. Vice calls it, quote, a sparkling example of how to document our icons, end quote. Pull up to the theater, baby. Grace Jones, Bloodlight and Bammy is coming to select cities starting April 13th. This edition of the Film Comment podcast is supported by the River Run International Film Festival, April 19th through the 29th in Winston-Salem and Greensboro, North Carolina. Information at riverrunfilm.com/getaway. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Lucrecia Martel made her triumphant return to filmmaking earlier this year with Sama, an adaptation of Antonio Di Benedetto's 1956 novel of the same name. Although the two Sama's are very different, Martel captured the spirit of Benedetto's text through a series of distinctive temporal and sonic strategies. I spoke to... Esther Allen. I'm
1: a professor at City University of New York and a literary translator from Spanish and French. Who translated
0: the novel into English. And...
2: Dennis Lim, Director of Programming at Film Society of Lincoln Center.
0: About both book and film. Here's our conversation. Thank you both for coming. And today we're going to be talking about a novel that you, Esther, translated, Antonio Di Benedetto's Zama. And this was something that you translated a while ago, but it's actually been held back in anticipation of Lucrecia Martel's movie adaptation of it. And I'm I'm just going to assume that uh, people listening to this podcast are not super familiar with Latin American literature. You know, maybe they've heard names like Borges or Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But could you sort of locate Benedetto in that context and just sort of a larger literary context for people? Just help them out.
1: <laughs> okay. (laughs) Well, for starters, I learned something really interesting this weekend, uh, which is a friend of mine told me that his dad was in an army unit in World War II with a guy named Antonio Di Benedetto. But the guy later changed his name uh, to Tony Bennett. So Mm. please don't be confused by the fact that Tony Bennett's real name is Antonio Di Benedetto. It's a totally different person, totally different life. But uh, the obscurity that you mention is actually really relevant Mm -hmm. to his life and work because I think we can compare him maybe a little bit to Herman Melville in Mm -hmm. the United States. As many people know, he has a moment of fame early in life. He dies in obscurity, and it isn't until a couple of decades after his death that people start saying, wait a minute, the great novel is Moby Dick. So something a little bit similar happens with Antonio Di Benedetto. He is known as a journalist. He lives in a small town Not I mean a city called Mendoza, which is very far from Buenos Aires, and Argentina is a very centralized country. And he's also traveling the world a lot. He's actually covering film a lot. He he was fascinated by film. He's a film journalist, and he has this literary career, but none of his books really ever comes to much prominence uh, except for his second novel which won an award from the Argentine government and then 12 years later it won the Gran Premio de la Novela right that was his big moment of consecration and then 12 years later the Argentine government threw him in jail for 18 months during the dirty war and tortured him so he has this rather tragic life he goes into exile and while he's in exile People start reading Sama. This is decades after its original publication in 1956. A younger generation of writers starts reading Sama, and they start thinking that this is really a great book. At that point, it's sort of the the 80s. Uh, he actually dies in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. and And this legend of this obscure writer who wrote this extraordinary novel and then who had this other extraordinary body of work around that novel starts to grow with a younger generation of writers. The one that our listeners are most likely to have heard of is Roberto Bolaño, Mm -hmm. who actually wrote a short story. One of his most beautiful short stories is called Sensini. And it's about... Di Benedetto is the Sensini, changes the name. And basically, he enters literary competitions as a kind of game, this Sencini character. And he'll take like third or fourth place. And Bolaño, who's kind of the narrator, or the Bolaño figure who's the narrator of the story, reads this fourth place story and says, it's better than the winner, better than the second place, better than the third place, and better than most other stories I've ever read in my life. So uh, to be consecrated in that way by Bolaño in a work of literature, not a work of criticism, is pretty significant, as mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone can understand.
0: In the uh, New York Review of Books, your translation of the book, uh, you write in your introduction that most Latin American writers, you know, during the boom, sort of characterized by magical realism, mm-hmm. right? The Benedetto doesn't really fit into that. There is, particularly the character of Sama in the book, there's no like distinction f- between reality and imagination. It's sort of flattened. Could you talk about sort of like the prose style of the novel?
1: magical realism for a lot of Latin American writers kind of comes out of Kafka. Mm -hmm. We don't think of Kafka as a magical realist, but Garcia Marquez says that when he read The Metamorphosis, you know, it it gave him a whole new way of looking at writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But what Garcia Marquez does is sort of conjugate that with Latin American Catholicism and sort of magical folk beliefs, indigenous magical beliefs. And so we have, you know, levitating virgins and, and clouds of butterflies that within the Uh, The authorial tone of the novel are presented as being part of reality. Whereas I think that Di Benedetto is much more Kafka-esque in the sense of when you read him as when you read Kafka... Uh, it's not clear what's actually happening and what is simply the character's distorted perception of what's going on. He's much more in the realm of hallucination and dream, and it's not clear whether the reader is meant to take this as something that's actually occurring in the world. Uh, it's much more disorienting in that way. So, I mean, in in the Sensini, uh, the short story by Bolaño, he writes about how the critics dismissed him as Kafka in the colonies, right? Uh, so, yes, he comes out of a magical, realist tradition,
0: but he does something very, very different with it. You know, having lived with this text in a way, you know, going through it, translating it, bringing it into another language, watching Martel's film, the way she sort of brings it to the screen is very unique. And there there are some interesting changes she makes. But
1: well, it was interesting for me because I went up to her after the press screening on Friday just to introduce myself. And she knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And she said, of all the people who were going to see this film, I was the most terrified to have you see it. (laughs) (laughs) Which was kind of shocking to me. But I realized that Di Benedetto is long gone. And so I am the person on earth who is most, I would say, like you know, firmly wedded to the actual words of the novel. Mm -hmm. But what was really interesting was that to the extent that I could claim to speak for Di Benedetto, which is a sheer delusion on Mm -hmm. my part, you know, that results from having spent years and years and years trying to inhabit his mind. I felt like I could say to her that you took you found something in this book that was there. Mm. and you developed it right and that was what i saw on the screen and and i think that de benedict not just this book but the work as a whole really invites the kind of reading that that she gave to the film Um, and i also think that she's done something super interesting uh, which is that she's created a film that's uh, and, and and you know i guess i can think of other book film relationships that are a little bit similar uh, i was kind of fascinated by the relationship between arrival and the ted chang short story that it's based on mm. but it it's clearly extrapolating from the story and developing out from the narrative nucleus whereas what Martel does it, she inverts the book entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, The book is a first-person singular narrative and as a reader you're constantly aware that everything is really limited by this first-person narrator's perceptions. Mm -hmm. Really limited, possibly extremely distorted and it's well enough written that you can get a sense of what the world must look like to other people around him beyond what it looks like to you. And what Martel does or, or how she described it in one of the conversations was she didn't film the narrative that Don Diego de Sama, our main character that he writes down, she filmed the sort of universe of memory and experience Mm. that predates his writing. Mm. And so the the film sort of constitutes an expansion of the novel and a comment on the novel. and, And also, I think an enormous appreciation of the novel, like the, the most extraordinary appreciation of the novel that one could imagine. So I was so the idea that she would feel that I might be upset that she had betrayed <laughs> it was uh, was 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 sort of heartbreaking to me. But I reassured her that this was not the case.
2: I think she takes considerable liberties with the novel. Um, But I saw saw the film first, and then I read... I saw the film several months ago, and then I read the book. I read your translation, and then went back to the film. And reading the book, it, it was... You get the sense that this could have been such... A bad adaptation. I mean, it's not, it's, it's really not, it's not a book that really lends itself to the screen. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned, obviously, the first person singular, but voice, you're so inside his head throughout the book, you know, and I don't think that always translates well to um, cinematic representation. It's a period, it's a historical novel of, of sorts that isn't especially rich with detail. So, you know, which also doesn't provide that many visual guidelines for a filmmaker. Um, it's incredibly episodic uh and, you know and I, I think it's it's very smart that she doesn't try to capture everything that quote unquote happens in the book and I loved, I, I loved the film, and then reading the book, I, I, I also loved the book, and I realized that she was the perfect filmmaker for it in a way. I mean, just how much her films rely on disorientation, which is really the, the sense that you, you get as, as the book progresses. Um, and she's somebody who I think is a, is a master at that in terms of her use of sound, her use of off screen space, her use of decentered compositions. The, the way her, her entire vocabulary of filmmaking is so suited, I think, for the voice of Zama.
1: I couldn't agree more. In fact, there's actually something a little bit hallucinatory about it because um, if you might remember in the second section of Zama, which takes place in 1794, our hero, Don Diego de Zama, or our anti-hero, Don Diego de Zama, is having one of the most sort of surreal moments of the book where he's in this inn which does happen in the, in the movie a little bit and he, he perceives these female figures sort of mm-hmm. moving. he doesn't know who they are and he's told that they don't exist um, and in the book it's very clear this is a book written in 1956 uh, that it's very clear that one of them is named Lucrecia. Missia Lucrezia, yes. and which is like you know, and I said to her, "Did it kind of freak you out that there's actually a figure in this novel named Lucrezia?" And she said, "There is," and she had, <laughs> and she had forgotten, like she literally had to mm-hmm. repress that fact about the book. And I feel like that's very real; like you have to repress certain things in order to have your own vision. I couldn't agree with you more that her use of the frame is a fantastic counterpart to the very limited first-person vision that the book proposes because you're always aware when you're looking at her work... People are looking off screen and they're seeing something that we don't see, yep. or there's something happening that we can't see. She's constantly making you aware that the camera doesn't just show you things, but it also prevents you from seeing things, mm-hmm. which is very much what the the narrative of the novel is doing. I, and then I also think that there's a huge amount of overlap in sensibility. Um, they're both people in this incredibly centralized country of Argentina, as I mentioned, where everything moves in, it's like France in that Mm -hmm. sense, like everything goes to Paris. Everybody goes to Buenos Aires. If you're ambitious, you have to go to Buenos Aires. Uh, she staked her claim on this very provincial mm-hmm. town called Salta, mm-hmm. and he remained firmly in Mendoza. They both said, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to go to the big magnet metropolis. We're going to create art somewhere else that has to do with our experience in these regional, provincial places. And, yeah, she's the perfect filmmaker for this, and she was a smart enough filmmaker to realize that the film had to do very different things yeah. mm-hmm. with the material than the book. There are a couple of films of di Benedetto that stay stay very close, mm. and I you know i, I don't think they 're really very good at all they 're not very successful at all, so she learned from that lesson yeah.
0: Yeah. no it's interesting because in both the film and in the novel, there is this sense of. Sama beginning in civilization and then getting pushed farther and farther and farther away from it and you know obviously solitude is the great theme of Latin American literature as we all know as we all surely we all know this but it's it's fascinating to see this play out and particularly her choice of using an actor who is older and you see him just sort of as you mentioned before, there are these jumps, you know, the the novel moves. Basically, over the course of the novel, it's like a nine-year period of deterioration. But there is no 1794. We're in 1799. It just sort of takes you there. Right. The way she expresses the passage of time is just... Very fascinating, and i don 't know any way better to explain it than the old cliche you know when it 's your birthday, and someone asks you, "Do you feel older and you 're like, well, of course not and it 's like that's sort of how she she does it in the novel, but you can see you can see it in the this character who is just like you know he gets rattier and he maintains this very sort of prim European you know because he is so obsessed even though he 's born in the americas he 's very obsessed with this idea of the austerity of europeanness and the the the, the nobility of these things one of the most obvious
1: things about the book is that it's in this very stark tripartite right. division. Each, each and there's I... like years of absolutely undescribed time. So right. there's these like giant gaps yeah. and that's really a major part of how the narrative structure works and it had a huge impact, for example, on people like Bolaño who right. uses these giant echoing gaps in narrative to to tell a story to great effect and, and who in fact gives one of his, his major novels, the name of a year as right. its title, which is what they're called 1790, 1794, 1799. Mm-hmm. So she just strips away that temporality. She puts you in a completely different temporality. And the only way you can tell it's tripartite as you're watching the movie is that there are three governors, right? Mm, so yes. so the, there's, there's governor one, governor two, and governor right. three, and they're very different, and he seems to be getting older. But there's no division. There's no, like, you know, black screen with a year. It would have been so easy to do that, but she doesn't want to do that. She wants to make it into a single sort of dreamlike continuum. Mm. And she does a number of other things that I think are really interesting, in the book, Sama is obsessed with racial purity, which actually makes him really an outlier uh, in in Latin America and in the Southern Cone. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the history suggests that, you know, the conquistadores arrived and immediately began, uh, you know, marrying and copulating and producing a progeny with the Native women, you know, Mm -hmm. to the largest extent possible. The whole history of the area tells us this. But Sama is this weird outlier in that respect which seems to have to do with his precarious position since he's actually born in the Americas he's not born in Spain um, which makes him neither one thing nor the other thing Mm -hmm. Um, so in the novel he's very consciously obsessed with he must be with a Spanish woman if he's gonna be with a woman has to be a Spaniard and Lucrecia Martel just strips that away. He has a child, but he has a child with an Indian woman. It's a mestizo child, and she kind of just kind of says, "Well, all of that was just him pretending to himself that he wasn't what he actually is." Right. And this is the historical reality. So uh, I kind of enjoyed, you know, that she's she's stripping away that pretense. You know, his ideas of purity are are contaminated, or what he would view as contamination. And what she presents at the end of the movie is the possibility of survival, right? right, right. Um, and And the other way in which she does that is um, there are all these, like, really hallucinatory moments in the novel. It's it's one of the recurring motifs because the book sort of precedes – the narrative sort of precedes by these echoes of, you know, you'll have something that happens in one of the sections – and it sort of echoes something that happened in another section. Uh, it doesn't tie directly to it, but it echoes it. And again and again, people have like a, a, a dangerous insect crawling across their skin um, that could kill them, you know, or a dangerous snake that could kill them, like an, an that contact with an animal that could kill them. And it never happens. Like the bite, the infection, the contagion in the book never happens. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, um, at the end, you have this person whose arm is separating, oh, you know. From from a spider bite, like the contagion occurred, you know, nature got in there and dug her teeth in, Mm -hmm. you know? And so again, it's kind of a response like you with your delusion of purity or delusion that this isn't going to happen. I'm going to correct that. And I'm going to say this did happen. This does happen. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I'll just add a couple of things to that, which is this to come back to the question of, of time, how it operates in the novel versus how it operates in the film. I think, I th- I thought it was a really interesting choice too to not like have these clearly demarcated chapters each one you know clearly identified as, as transpiring in a particular year but I think Martel is also somebody it works really well in the book it's actually kind of like you know you come back four years later and he's still waiting you know and I feel but in in the novel uh, sorry no in the film so there are too many <laughs> things
1: well they, what happens no, in, is that they become all one thing
2: no exactly um, yes. and I feel like there is. Uh, and she's somebody who works um, so well and so like intuitively with with ellipses in all her films, mm-hmm. and I think that works so well here. And also not just ellipses, but she talks about developing her films as layers, as narrative layers, always having something happening in the foreground, something in the background. You know, so that it's not like just one line, one one narrative progression on a line or on a plane. And I think that in a way, is very true to the sense of time in the book as well.
1: Yeah, no, I think she really does capture the sense of time, but not by being literally reproducing right. it, yeah. you know, as the, as the way the book does it, but by finding her own way towards it.
2: Yeah, and the, the point about, like, you know, the, that very pointed switch, um, that he has a child, not with a Spanish woman, but with, you know, uh, a, a native woman is... is this is interesting too, I think, in the context of Martel's work, which I, you know, all of her films deal with class. They all deal with like, racial, racial and geographic identity. I mean, you can trace a line, I mean, from, you know, I think people have said this, from Zama to, this is a very different kind of film for her. Mm-hmm. But like it is, you know, you can trace a line from Zama to like the family in La Ciénaga, her first right. film
0: could you sort of talk more about how it relates to her those other works because we you know we've been waiting so long for her to do another film and like it has this illusion of being something that's very free-flowing but in order to achieve that level of just like focalization and just total you know subjectivity that you could say that either has to do with journalism where you're a first person reporting from somewhere or you it has to do with the type of POV shots in film or what have you how do you view this in terms of form in terms of her the evolution of her filmmaking because I feel like it's so tightly everything is so tightly executed and composed and constrained
1: well I I mean I think her earlier works are masterful uh, but I see this as being really a breakthrough for her and it was obviously what she was looking for was a breakthrough because she she set out to do a sci-fi movie, right? So that says to me, uh, I'm ready as a filmmaker, you know, that there's that old writing workshop dictum, write what you know, right? And I would say that her earlier films are the world around her, the world she grew up in, the world she knows, right? And the fact that she set out to make a sci-fi movie um, says that she she really set out to invent a world, not not make the again record her observations about the world she knows, but invent a world. And and Zama gave her an opportunity to do the same thing, um, which is invent this this fabulous sci-fi 18th century. Um, in which things are not historically accurate and yet are, which is by the way precisely what Antonio di Benedetto does. Mm-hmm. He plays with the idea of the historical novel, but primarily in order to subvert it. So she's sort of playing with the idea of the you know the merchant ivory costume drama thing, but in order to subvert it and in order to show how artificial it is. But I think it's a huge step forward in her development, where she's taking this extraordinary toolkit um, that that she she. Honed in these earlier works, which are so masterful, and putting it to use to just develop an an entire new universe, you know, and heretofore unseen. I mean, really heretofore unseen. I feel like, um, like echoes of things, like echoes of Barry Lyndon, you know, Definitely, echoes yeah. of some of um Herzog, you know, but mm-hmm. a totally different at the same time. And what do you think? Yeah.
2: It's a leap in a way, but it's on the face of it, it seems like such a departure, right? It's like a first adaptation, her first period piece, first film with like a, a male centered on a male protagonist, mm-hmm. um, and all her, all three of her films really they they have been grouped as a trilogy. This they've been called the Salta trilogy, I think, and they all deal with you know very clearly with middle class Argentinian life. But I do think it's it's consistent. I mean, formally it's consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, I I you you know you watch a few a few frames and you know it's you know, it's her. I mean, she's such has such a distinctive imprint. I think we haven't really talked about the use of sound mm-hmm. too, which oh, yeah. I think has an effect on. I think she's a, an absolute master when it comes to, you know, sound. I don't think any other working filmmaker is using sound in such a radical way. Um, you know, you. I always think of that the Brisson line from Notes on a Cinematographer, where he talks says like if if a sound can replace an image, um, cut the image. Right. You know, and <laughs> I, I I think she's somebody who's actually. Who does that in many ways? Um mm-hmm. the sound in, in Zama is so is so precise, it's so heightened, you know, from just like the, the animal, insect, bird sounds that mm-hmm. are just omnipresent to this these odd anachronistic sounds, which also I think confuses the sense of time. When we you know you have these like kind of electronic tones, sort of like just right. intruding. It's like uh, Hawaiian music, right? And right. then like this odd like um, oh, this Brazilian duo los, from the fifties,
0: right? Yeah, 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 which, yeah. But
2: also, it, uh, I also thought uh, Hawaiian music yeah, when were, I first Oh, heard we're it. in the
0: tiki room. How right. unusual!
2: <laughs> um, so I think yeah, I, I agree. I think it's 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 amazing. I think to see to see a filmmaker like you know. As adventurous as her, just like take on something completely new and, like, and, and bring her sensibility, which I think has been fully formed from the beginning uh, mm-hmm. uh, to, to bear on it.
1: Well, your observation about sound is really great because if, if there's one quality that Di Benedetto's work has more than any other, I would say it's silence. Like he uses silence. He uses the blank spaces on the page. He uses extremely terse phrases. um, And a little bit less so in Zama because he does get caught up in sort of Baroque language, um, you know, and really kind of chewy, contorted sentences. Mm -hmm. But then he breaks into these silences. And the the second novel in the trilogy is actually called The Silenciary, which he adopts. It's the name of a sort of uh, uh, Ottoman, uh, not Ottoman, Byzantine court official who had to preserve. Observe silence and it's mm-hmm. about someone who's obsessed with silence and I think that the only way that you can really translate it effectively to this to this screen is is through sound is is precisely with this kind of extraordinary attention to sound and drawing your attention to each sound the way that she does, not by using silence as a filmmaker, but by going in the opposite direction. I was just amazed by how she did that.
0: This edition of the film comment podcast is sponsored by the 20th river run international film festival taking place April 19th through the 29th in Winston-Salem and Greensboro, North Carolina. 165 films from over 40 countries will be screened in addition to panels and special events. Honorees include Piper Laurie and Chuck Workman, and the program also includes a selection of archival screenings on film. Getaway packages are available at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway. A larger-than-life entertainer, an androgynous glam pop diva, a stormy media presence, Grace Jones is all of these things and more. Sophie Fine's new documentary *Grace Jones: Bloodlight and Bammy* is an electrifying journey through the public and private worlds of the pop culture mega icon that mixes concert footage with intimate family tableaus. *Grace Jones: Bloodlight and Bammy* opens April 13th at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Metrograph, and BAM with Q and A's before expanding to select cities those electronic noises are sort of matched to these points in the novel where I guess you could say he's going into a fugue or an imaginative state right. or right. wishful state, let's say. Right. Um, and it's it's just uh, incredible. But I mean, the, compositionally, you know, I always think of that image of I guess in the third section where they're going to find the deliciously named Vicuña Porto, which is like, I'm sorry. That's like so amazing. Cause it's like Vicuña, the type of finer than alpaca wool, finer than cashmere wool. And then Porto, which in Spanish is like port, right? Which is what they're illegally smuggling in at the beginning. Like it's so, and the way that that is the, the figure of Vicuña Porto is threaded through the movie isn't really there in the book, right? That really, I mean,
2: not until the very end. Right?
0: Not until the very end. Well, but it- here it's like he makes these little, you know, he's talked about, and then someone has his ear. He's supposedly been apprehended before, and even at the end, it's like there's this doubt that when this guy who's looking for Vicuna Porto says, "I'm actually him," uh, there's a doubt that that is even the same guy. Like there's this this incredible sense of like what like you can't there you know not just an unreliable narrator but just like everyone is everyone is lying everything is built on a lie
1: <laughs> well it's funny right after i first saw the novel and Ar- I saw the novel listen to me i'm doing what you do <laughs> right after i first saw the movie an argentine friend told me this anecdote which i think also shows how embedded the novel has become in literate argentine sense of their own history because he said there's a there's an incident in the dirty war which makes me certain that some of the people who were in the junta had read Sama. And I was like, well, what? Um, So there was a Argentine finance minister named Domingo Carvalho, who was hated, loathed, in a way that we can all understand so well right now. (laughs) And one day, a huge crowd had gathered to protest outside his house, which is an Argentine tradition. Mm. And Domingo Carvalho had to leave the house. He had to be somewhere, had to be at a meeting. And uh, my friend said to me, I know he had read Sama because of the way he found of leaving his house. What he did was he took a Domingo Carvalho mask, of which there were many, and people (laughs) were wearing them outside protesting him. He put it over his head. And he left the house wearing the Domingo <laughs> Carvalho <by your> mask. <laughs> He's like, and that was when I knew he had read some. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, so that also tells you like, how much people are inflecting their sense of their own history through this novel, which I think also liberated her in terms of faithfulness to the book. Absolutely. Because the original audience for this film knows this book intimately. Mm-hmm. So she can kind of have a conversation with her audience about the book via the film with a fair amount of confidence that they've read it. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you have a sense of how the film might play to people who don't know the book at all?
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's funny. Some of my grad students uh, went to see it this weekend and without knowing the book or her work. And they seemed perplexed. Mm-hmm. They seemed perplexed by it. Um, and I think that there's no question that she's... Well, she. I think she. she wouldn't... Uh, spurn that reaction. I mean, what she said when she presented the film was, you know, just enjoy it the way you would a glass of whiskey. You know, <laughs> and just sort of take it for the sensory pleasure mm-hmm. that it offers you. Yeah, I, but I suspect she's not too worried about that.
2: No, I I, I agree. Um, I I think it, it 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 may help if you know either her work or the book. But um, I've seen it twice, and I, I I think I'm still a little perplexed by some of what happens in it. Uh, but I I I tend to enjoy that. Um, I think you know in, in in films, and I think her films are are I think disorienting in a particularly exciting way. I think
0: because again, it's 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 interesting that you can also understand Benedetto's prose and you know or what he's trying to do with something like Zama or other other books he was writing around the time. That it's like sort of part of the nouveau roman tradition right where it's sort of playing with this sort of fil- you know inherited from film subjectivity and all this stuff but so many films like filmmakers attempt to help you understand this world and understand spatial relations and make everything very clear and you know she's just doing something completely different from that that has nothing to do with being sloppy you know like the way that uh, the spatial and relations, let's say in like a big fight sequence in a a film is sort of like it's intentionally choppy to sort of disorient you. This is something very different. Very different.
1: I love that you mentioned the Nouveau Roman because Du Benedetto actually went through his sort of like, I'm obsessed with the Nouveau Roman period. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the one of the perils of being a provincial. Right. Um, you know <laughs> that you decide that Alain Robrier is like a really incredible writer and that you're gonna like <laughs> do, do write like Alain Robrier. So he has this weird period where he's ty- sort of trying to do like Alain Robrier and he interviews Alain Robrier mm. Khan. He like writes about Alain Robrier for his newspaper in Mendoza. And then he quickly outgrows it, thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, w- what's interesting about that is that of course comes out of cinema. It's an right. attempt to sort of write objectively the way that the cinema does. And in Zama, he's he's going in the exact opposite direction. He's attempting to do something so way too internal that cinema can never do. Right.
0: She achieves that in a crazy way. But again, it has everything and nothing to do with what he wrote, which is
1: so sublime so great. Um, in the novel the place that Sama yearns for is it, it's very clearly he wants most to go to Madrid which is the center of all power then he wants to go to Buenos Aires and if he can't go to Buenos Aires he wants to go to Santiago de Chile and why does right. he want to go to Santiago de Chile? because it's close to where his wife is which indicates that his wife must be in Mendoza so it's like this weird, mm-hmm. bizarre you'd have to really know the geography of the southern cone to figure out that one of the places that uh, Zama wants to go back to is Mendoza uh, Di Benedetto's own town so so, but I could not figure out why in the movie, Salma wants to go to the Ciudad de Lerma, which right. as far as I know is like this provincial Spanish town, very old. Like, why does he want to go to the Ciudad de Lerma? So I finally just asked her, I was like, why? Because she made it's like, he says it again and again, right. even in the trailer, right. he says Ciudad de Lerma. And I was like, Lerma? Um, and she said, because Salta in the 18th century, was her town, Salta, was sometimes called Ciudad de Lerma because it's Ciudad de Salta en la Valle de Lerma. Lerma oh. is the name of the valley that the city is in. So people would sometimes, for short, say Ciudad de Lerma, which I tried to verify and was totally unable to verify. But, of course, that makes it like all the richer as a kind right. of right. A distinctive quirk. So she was actually making him yearn to go to her hometown, like, which I love that as a really subtle way of just saying, okay, this is, this is mine now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess another thing is that I feel like if you do have an understanding, not just of the geography of the area or the history of the area, but just knowing the difference between Spanish and Portuguese. And I hate when subtitles do this when they don't identify that right. the characters yeah. are speaking a different language. Because <laughs> right. it is super important, especially in the third section. Right. And just the, um, and of course, you know, bringing up Lerma, the grand irony that this guy that is an underling that he gets mad at and he just beats up, gets sent to Lerma right. as right. punishment. Right. And so essentially it's sort of saying, like, you can never go there. Right. Someone else's punishment is your reward. But also that this novel is set during a very particular time in like the this big, huge viceroyalty of Argentina that again the, the center was in Buenos Aires. But where he is at is more of like where Paraguay is now. Mm-hmm. And that this was a huge time for prosperity in that particular viceroyalty, and that people were getting rich, and this is someone who's just like Falling apart and just cannot, and just getting pushed further and further and further away from his desires or just any sort of semblance of, you know, at the end of the book, he's just mutilated and just like completely destitute. But
2: the mix of languages, I mean, is as you point out true to the historical reality. It's also interesting to think mm-hmm. about as, uh, about the film as an international co production, yes. Um, which this is not an easy film to make. I mean, it's no. an Argentinian, you know, many years in the making, Argentinian, Brazilian, Mexican, Spanish, Portuguese co-production and there's you know the, the mix of actors who are Mexican Spanish Brazilian Argentinian I think and there's a Portuguese DP and I, I, I think that's all you know quite interesting to to think about as well. Well,
1: and I agree that there's this limitation to subtitling because, first of all, she doesn't subtitle any of the indigenous languages, which I thought was really interesting. They're just floating, and they're just as opaque to the Spanish-speaking audience as they are to the English-speaking audience. Mm -hmm. And it's something that actually came up in my translation of Sama, because he uses lots of Guarani. He also was really interested in using these languages as a way of like just indicating that there's this whole other world out there beyond these people, and when I did the translation I, I actually had this weird interchange with the copy editor who was like well this is a Guarani word no one's going to recognize it and I was like yes and that's the whole point. <laughs> I'm not going to translate that right. Guarani right. word because that's the whole point. So she does exactly the same thing but at the very end when they all start speaking Portuguese yes. I felt like there was another bit of DNA that was being spliced in there especially Absolutely. with the colored yeah. powders and everything yeah. that she was really referring to all of these people that have recently come to prominence here the portuguese the the brazilian neo concretists like lija pape and the the guy who just had an exhibit at the whitney named helio something that i can't pronounce because yeah. my portuguese is terrible it's like oi <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah
2: <laughs> you'll do better than i but
1: he the, i think actually that's where like the some of the colored powders you know that they're using and the fact that they're speaking Portuguese, Mm -hmm. at the end. They're not even speaking Spanish anymore. Obviously, in the novel, they're heading up towards Brazil. But how would they... It doesn't make any sense in terms of the logic of the novel. It's where she's just like just discarding the logic of the novel completely for this other utterly surreal novel and I think that the most intense moment of that is when there's the Indian ceremony yes but they um. seem to be in a steam bath like they're in, a, in right. an echoing internal space that no indigenous community in that period could ever possibly or would ever possibly have constructed exactly right. um so it's so bizarre because you're having like the most the moment of the most utterly sort of native, ceremony and it's all happening with these doors opening shutting of the sound yeah like metallic
0: almost yeah and and it's
1: where she's just going this is my world this is sci-fi yeah yeah, this is i'm doing this and you just have to you're along for the ride
0: well yeah and it gets back to this question of like expressing something subjective in filmmaking which is like i am not sort of expressing it through my language or filtering it through my memory, but I'm showing you literally what this thing is. And it's like, he can't even process at that moment what is going on. So it just becomes this totally other crazy thing. But again, you have to be sort of familiar with, like you say, no indigenous people would ever do that. Like, why would they do that? But, but and especially- and it's Indigenous so, people in a steam bath in the middle of the Gran Chaco, it doesn't make any it's sense. It's already hot outside. You don't need to build a steam bath. And the way the prose in that third section of the novel is just, like, so rudimentary and just, like, bulleted and just sort of tacked her. Again, it's sort of like, I want to say short and journalistic, but that's not even close to what it is. It's just so fascinating that she sort of takes this thing and just expands upon it in a fascinating way. In A way that only she could, and I'm glad she did. Absolutely. <laughs> We can end it there, but before we close, as we always do, it would be great if each of us said a film that we've seen recently that we liked. I will go first. I will mention quickly that I saw Stephen James' Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, and Stephen James, you know, uh, he's director of Who Dreams and also The Interrupters. But I just thought it was, um, it's just a really interesting portrait of a small family-owned bank in Chinatown that was the only bank prosecuted in the wake of the financial crisis for mortgage fraud. And the Manhattan District Attorney, Sy Vance, in that film, uh, goes on, you know, they ask him basically, like, why? Because it was really just a case of, like, a bad egg. There was one loan officer who was doing all this pretty shady stuff and also embezzling a lot of money from the bank. But... The Manhattan District Attorney Saivan sort of made a decision to go after the whole bank, you know, and sort of make an example of them. Uh, and it's interesting because he's going on this big thing. They ask him, like, well, why didn't you go after, like, you know, Goldman Sachs or these Lehrman brothers, all these other huge Or banks? Ivanka
1: Trump or, or Harvey or, C- uh, Exactly.
0: That's what I was about to say. Mm-hmm. So he goes on this thing where he's like, well, you know, the law is the law and it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter if I steal five cents, it's still stealing and you need to do And it's like, this is the same guy who uh, was taking ca- campaign contributions. From these uh, big, uh, important lawyer people, so it's like, yeah, and sorry. Um, and it, I mean, Stephen James makes it very clear that what he says is bullshit. Richly ironic now. So uh, watch that. Even more so. Even more so. So yeah.
2: Wow, I'm gonna see that one. Yeah, on, on the beach at night alone, and the day after. I love them both. I think he's working at a nobody. No, nobody works the way he does. Um, you know, he talked a lot about his working process when he was. Here, he he starts with with almost nothing at all he he knows which actors uh, he knows which locations he's gonna use um, and then the film is made literally day by day he wakes up in the morning and writes a scene then they shoot it um, and he ends three weeks later and I think there's something really freeing about this idea of like working with ex working within extreme limitations um, I, I think it's uh it's produced like some really fascinating work um, and I was Surprised that the films um, more than held out for me on a second viewing. Um, I think he's at a, a really interesting phase of his career.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I really want to see this guy's films now because there's actually an Argentine writer. Not everything in the world devolves yeah. into an Argentine writer for me. <laughs> but there is the Argentine writer Cesar Ayra, who sort of, sure, as yes. a writer, yes. does the same thing, yeah. like just sits down, starts writing, doesn't correct, won't correct anything, and gets to 100 pages and stops. You know, it's, it sounds, this sounds like a sort of filmmaking yeah, yeah, technique yeah. Yeah. that kind of jives with that. And I would love to see that. I wrote a, a really
2: interesting text on a film festival once called Festival. Oh.
1: Yeah. I, I sure. believe it's really interesting. I, Ira is one of my obsessions. I have to say, my movie is it's like ancient history compared to you guys. Um, but I'd have to go to to Arrival, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Arrival, because I was stunned that that I don't expect that level of thought from a big budget Hollywood sci-fi movie. Uh, and I certainly don't expect that contemplation of language and communication um, and and as someone who's a translator I have to say it was the most infinitely gratifying movie that I've ever seen in my entire life because of course the translator saves humanity um, you know which of course we, <laughs> we all have our you know the, <laughs> when they make the movie about the film festival director who saves humanity you know like <laughs> you'll be you, you'll, like, you'll, like, you'll probably really enjoy the film um, and so in my case I was like wow where has this film been all my life um, but I also thought that it was it, it got me really interested in Danny Villeneuve and I've been absolutely meaning to explore his work ever since then my friend Sherry Simon who's a Montreal translator and and uh, theorist of translation gave me this long list of films I him that I had to see and of course I haven't seen any of them because I just have too many other things to do these days
0: but I'm going to
1: and I thought Arrival was extraordinary
0: well thank you both this is wonderful. You. You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Repold, and edited by Michael Odemark You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. The Film Comment podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Grace Jones: Bloodlight and Bami, an electrifying journey through the public and private worlds of the pop culture mega-icon. Grace Jones: Bloodlight and Bami opens April 13th at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, Metrograph and BAM with Q&As before expanding to select cities. This edition of the Film Comet Podcast is supported by the Riverrun International Film Festival, April 19th through the 29th in Winston-Salem and Greensboro, North Carolina. Information at riverrunfilm.com getaway.